The comments, conclusions, findings, and opinions expressed by contributors of this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the Department of Defense or the United States government. The use of trade names or commercial entities is for identification only and does not imply endorsement by the Department of Defense or the United States government. Welcome back to the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Podcast. This is Monty from the Joint Trauma System and the Committee on TC3. On this edition, we will discuss battlefield analgesia, the importance of medical direction, and the advancing of medic scope of practice. Uh, today, I have Dr. Cord Cunningham. He is a former battalion surgeon with 2nd Ranger Battalion and a surgical recess team uh, member with U.S. Special Operations Command. He is a board-certified emergency medicine physician and one of five Army physicians subsequently board-certified in pre-hospital medicine, or EMS. He is currently the brigade surgeon with 1st Air Cav Brigade at Fort Hood. Welcome, Dr. Cunningham. Thank you so much for having me, Monty. These topics are extremely important to me, as I know they are to you and all of the operational forces. These ultimately can improve pre-hospital and casualty survivability and morbidity. So we'll, we'll kick it right off. So with uh, all the emphasis of TC3 on March and MarchE, the mnemonics and algorithms out there, why did the topics of battlefield analgesia and medical direction deserve further attention and discussion? As we can both appreciate, as others, others that are familiar with TC3, true extremity hemorrhage, exsanguinating hemorrhage of the extremities, airway occlusion, and tension pneumothorax are still the top three causes of preventable pre-hospital and battlefield death. And these are stressed in the first four letters of the Marchi algorithm, massive hemorrhage, airway, respiration, circulation. H is where we kind of delve into some of the other things for hypothermia, head injury, and that highlights one of the three aspects of the lethal triad not addressed already in those three preventable causes, as well as the fact that TBI is a part of good pre-hospital management and managing those aspects of the lethal triad can improve our survivability of TBI by greater than 50%. And then we move on to the E, which really encompasses everything else that should be accomplished, which includes analgesia, documentation, splinting, packaging, antibiotics, and this ensures further reduction in, in overall morbidity and mortality, and that's why analgesia kind of is, is still a very important thing, although it's not recognized in those three top causes of preventable pre-hospital death. So why is analgesia so important, especially on the battlefield? Certainly. Appropriate analgesia administration is fundamental in, in our primary approach to easing suffering which is known in the, in the key component of beneficence as a principal ethic of medicine, as well as pre-hospital care of our, our, uh, that our medics are performing each and every day on the battlefield. Furthermore, it has been shown to reduce PTSD rates, which is of particular interest to the Department of Defense, as well as Veterans Affairs and to our, our public at large. And it can also reduce the consequences of the catabolic stress of trauma that can lengthen recovery and even decrease chances of ultimate survival for a multitude of multi-system traumatic injuries. Interesting. So how does TC3 address analgesia and what, what have been some of the recently reported adherence to that recommendation in TC3? So the current triple option analgesia guideline was recommended as an update and simplification in 2013. And currently option one is the analgesic contents of the combat wound pill pack, which is the meloxicam Tylenol administration just orally for those casualties in that minimal to moderate pain 
category or those that you really desire to keep them armed and in the fight. And then we transition to option two, which is for that moderate to severe pain without the presence of shock or respiratory distress. And that brings up the oral transmucosal fentanyl at 800 micrograms as kind of its primary. And then was, as we transition to option three, which is for moderate to severe pain, when respiratory distress or shock is present or likely to develop, and that's when ketamine comes in as the recommendation in that 50 milligrams intramuscular or intranasal, and then you transition to 20 milligrams for that slow IV or IO administration every 10 to 30 minutes. And then morphine is still listed as a possible alternative to fentanyl. And then we looked at recently with the U.S. Army Institute of Surgical Research performed a process improvement project on analgesic administration using data from the pre-hospital trauma registry and the DOD trauma registry from January 13th to September 2014. And it had a total of 737 patient encounters. 705 could be included because they had some, some missing records, uh, some combat killed in action that could be analyzed based upon uh, the data in there. And with these, 397 had any documentation of analgesia administered within that pre-hospital phase. So only just over 50%, really, about 56%. And of those 397, a total of 501 administration episodes of analgesia. So obviously with that 397 total, uh, 500, 501 administrations, a couple of those casualties had had multiple analgesia administrations. And then we looked at adherence strictly to those really option two and three for those administrations. And we were just under 50%, so 48% were in accordance with the medications and indications listed within that, that triple option. This does seem a bit low, I, I would say, given the the number of casualties we've had, that's definitely uh, definitely some low number numbers in reporting. What what would you, if you were to categorize those discrepancies? What what would be the main categories and across the force? What what kind of providers are uh, administering analgesia? Sure, with how the TC3 guidelines are are laid out, even though some of these medications, from a civilian perspective, seem like they don't fall into an EMT's level of care. And initially, in the TC3 guidelines, ketamine was restricted to only advanced providers and soft providers that had kind of paramedic plus level training. But as our comfort with ketamine has improved and its distribution has improved, that has become a an EMT level skill. So we look at this analgesia administration uh, at the EMT medic level, uh, also at the, the advanced practice pre-hospital provider, that ATP or soft paramedic level. Uh, also look at our medical officer administration. And then this data was looked and analyzed across special operations forces, conventional forces, and, and local national casualties. Interesting. So uh, although there's not really statistical significance uh, to any of the findings, what, what's, what do you attribute to the, to the adherence problems? Seems like it could be a number of things. Certainly, without a a statistical significance to the data, it's hard to really make a direct causal inference or link from those. But looking at 
at the time period that the, the new updates came out in TC3, as well as just kind of experience over the, the duration of the global war on terror, uh, as well as kind of anecdotal and after action report review, it seems like that it, it breaks down to a, a couple of different categories. I think sustainment is one of those. So how do we ensure that our, our pre-hospital providers uh, that might not be exposed to this traumatically wounded casualty pattern until they go to a combat theater of operations, how do we maintain that in the this garrison or stateside training training environment? Particularly when we look at some of these medications, in particular uh, ketamine, and since we're not really using it outside of some limited soft applications in the garrison environment, and then you roll into a combat theater of operations and now just expect every level of provider to be comfortable with that administration. This also kind of plays into that aspect of, of medical direction, which is our, our medical officer comfort with those, with those specific medications. Ketamine is, I think, the, the most notorious one, both from its widespread use in, in many settings, but also the fact that many providers don't have experience with that through our graduate medical education system in the civilian sector as well as there are still some persistent thoughts that, that ketamine has some, some untoward outcomes that have really not been supported by, by the data and literature. And so some of this ends up being its cause of apneic periods if it's administered. Now, certainly if it's given rapid IV push, there are instances where, where it can cause some halting in the respirations, but very rarely results in, in any hypoxia that the contraindication with increased intracranial pressure or increased ocular pressure. Uh, many experts have now come back and said that it actually improves cerebral perfusion pressure as well as it doesn't have an impact upon intraocular pressure, although some, some caution is still advised. But if there's a multiply traumatic wounded patient that requires ketamine administration as well as kind of that concern for shock development, that it really is the preferred medication. And so part of this is just our civilian graduate medical education programs, which is where we pull a great degree of our medical directors, our battalion surgeons, our general medical officers, our PAs, pulling them from those training programs. How do we get them up to speed on the data that's being generated recently? Well, ketamine is definitely the hot topic of the day. Uh, so, I mean, it's a it's a safe, simple drug to administer. Um, it's a DEA scheduled or controlled medication that is limited to just physician anesthesia in most uh, most states out there. How, how does the army or the or the military place this in the hands of a of a sixty eight whiskey or, or or junior medics? That's a, a great question, and one that, as you pointed out, is of particular controversy and discussion. So one of the, the staff judge advocate lawyers down at the, the Army Medical Department um, Center and School, Center of Excellence, boils it simply down to the supremacy clause in the U.S. Constitution. So Article 6, Section 2 says that the, the laws of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. Now, the, the U.S. government can cede control to the states. And a primary example of this in, in, in Army medicine is the fact that up until 1998, state medical licenses weren't required for, 
for practicing military physicians. Now, we know that part of that is they want to adhere to a similar standard that, uh, that the civilian civilian medicine adheres to. So part of that is an appearance. So we want to say that we're joint commission certified, even though technically and legally we don't have to be. But it's this, this pursuit of adhering to similar standards that kind of drives that, that further um, thought, as well as the fact that because ketamine is a DEA-scheduled medication, in many cases and many states, nurses are not allowed to administer that unless they're advanced practice nurses. So your your anesthesia certified registered nurse anesthetist, as well as in some states it's being placed in the hands of EMS under certain guidelines and certain indications. And that brings us kind of to the discussion of EMS regulation within all of the states and how we place this in the hands of pre-hospital providers. Many states have a state medical, EMS medical director. Many states do not. Texas in particular is one that, that practices under a delegated practice model where there's not a state governance of scope of practice for EMS providers. The Army is viewed under the National Registry of Emergency Medical Technicians as its own state entity. So it has the ability to govern pre-hospital provider practice, and really that's done through the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care Protocols. That's done through the Army EMS, the Soldier's Manual, Manual and Train, Trainer's Guide for the 68 Whiskey, which is the combat medic MOS for the Army. And so it places many of the things that on the civilian sector would not be viewed as a EMT level skill, but are required during combat operations where they don't have immediate medical direction or immediate availability of a, of a doctor, or PA, or a nurse, that they are allowed by, by Army guidelines and doctrine to be able to perform these things. And this kind of poses a, a challenge when in the garrison environment, we're delivering healthcare under a joint commission-like structure with a great degree of civilian healthcare provider presence nursing presence that doesn't have familiarity in the in the role one setting and what medics are are required to do and this just this generates a great degree of friction well you definitely hit it there i mean some of these issues go way beyond things like ketamine uh, i mean should should enlisted pre-hospital providers have other advanced medications protocols techniques within their day-to-day scope of practice absolutely and the surgeon general for the army in November came out with a a new policy memo and a revision of the medical command regulation 40-50, which talks about all of the 68 whiskey, the healthcare, military occupational specialties, so all the enlisted skill sets within, within the medical department. And a lot of those, they looked at what we expect them to do in the combat theater of operations and what we allow them to do in the garrison fixed facility environment and really saw that we were not enabling them to practice up to the full level of the scope that we expect them to do in a combat theater of operations where things are inherently more dangerous, inherently more chaotic, and really the injury pattern is much greater. And yet we're not allowing them to practice up to that level in a very controlled environment within our healthcare facilities. The the current Surgeon General recognized that that was an issue and issued this revision that is really guiding us to to better prepare 
our enlisted medical specialties so that they can perform up to their, their full scope of practice. So part of this is that even their current scope of practice, there are some, there are some holes still in what our critical task lists say they can do to what might need to be done in the pre-hospital phase. And certainly from the, the landmark paper by Dr. Eastridge et al., showed that the biggest difference in casualty survival can be made in that pre-hospital phase is up to 80% of those ultimate differences in survivability are done in the pre-hospital setting. So it stands to reason that from a doctrine, organizational training, material, leadership, personnel, facilities, and policy solutions should be allocated to that endeavor. The .mil PF solutions that that we should put more skills within the hands of that pre-hospital provider. Now, certainly amongst them, our surgical colleagues, it would be great if we could have a trauma surgeon within an arm's throw of every combat casualty that occurs on today's battlefield. And there might be a time when we can achieve that, but I would say reasonably that that is not a, a feasible expectation. And therefore, this need to have a higher skill set within our pre-hospital providers is, is paramount. And certainly, we are pursuing that in, in many avenues. And I think what we have to not lose track of and what Ranger Regiment has really displayed is that you still have to do the fundamentals at an expert level. And that allows you to make a huge difference. So if we still address the, the major causes of pre-hospital and battlefield mortality of extremity exsanguination, uh, our airway compromise and tension pneumothorax, then we're able to move into that what used to be non-compressible hemorrhage, which is still a big cause of pre-hospital mortality. So that injury within the box, so within the abdomen or within the chest itself that currently we, we can't control. But some hemorrhage control interventions like Reboa implementation or the retrograde endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta with the ER Reboa that is a much smaller French size uh, that doesn't require a cut down in most instances to get to, nor does it require a, uh, a surgical repair of the, the vessel after you've inserted that, uh, that catheter that perhaps in the right setting and the right training pathway, we can get our, our advanced pre-hospital providers to potentially uh, intervene and, and get, get combat casualties that would not have survived without that intervention to, to a level of care where they can survive. Well, these all definitely sound like uh, good steps and going in the right direction, but we still have a long way to go. And a lot of these, even even with larger uh, service level policies, a lot of this is still down at the local level. Um, what what kind of advice would you give to battalion surgeons and PAs on implementing some of this at the at the lower level? Absolutely agree with that assessment, Monty. And and from a civilian perspective, they talk about in the in the disaster medicine approach that all disasters occur at a local level. So the expectation that some higher regulatory body or some higher intervening authority will come in and solve your, solve your problems at the, at the local level is not reasonable. So that recommendation and preparation of our, of our battalion surgeons, our battalion PAs, and our senior medics to be the true experts in pre-hospital care. So have, have familiarity with the TC3 guidelines be up to date 
on all the new new versions of things such as the cat tourniquet that that has gone through multiple revisions to try to improve it but unless the person in charge of that system understands all the new updates then then number one they're not able to to effectively apply that that pre-hospital trauma system supervision they don't have the credibility uh, and they don't have that level of comfort with that particular particular skill set. So how should a battalion surgeon, who is essentially a medical director, view their medic's scope of practice with their medical license? Great question, one that poses particular challenge to many of our recent graduates from our civilian graduate medical education programs or even our military graduate medical education programs, is the, the relationship from a credential provider perspective to a certified provider perspective perspective is often viewed as a these medics are are practicing medicine under my license which is an interesting determination one that the National Association of EMS Physicians NEMSP has actually made a position statement on during its medical director's course which is essentially that 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 national certification that our EMTs have that are advanced EMTs or that EMT intermediate, as well as our national registered paramedics and that advanced tactical provider, the, the soft paramedic, they view, even though that's a certification, that essentially it, it has all the tenets of a licensure, that they are able to do something which is the practice of medicine uh, and do things that would be illegal without that certification. So, in all intents and purposes, those those pre-hospital providers are not practicing directly under the license of that physician in, in many states. In Texas, it's considered a delegated practice state, which infers a different relationship. But really, the relationship is one of supervision, so that the, the medical director is the signature authority on those protocols. So even though we have TC3 at the service level, you still have the ability for for each organization and, and Ranger Regiment and 160th are prime examples of they have a different medic handbook that governs exactly what they should do, which is signed by their governing body and, and medical directors that are really the standards by which those pre-hospital providers practice medicine. That is not a, a direct relationship. They're not practicing medicine under that license. They're practicing medicine under those protocols that they're supposed to adhere to. Now, any deviation of those protocols requires that discussion between that medical director and that provider. But as long as they are operating under those protocols, then really that, that practice of medicine is upon their own certification. Perhaps it's semantics, but it's more so an expectation that that oftentimes, in particular, the, the ketamine issue is if that provider is not comfortable with the, the ketamine, they want to remove it from that, even though at the higher level, it is viewed within the critical task list, it's viewed within TC3 of those particular MOSs, and so they have the ability to do that scope of practice, but it's unnecessarily limited at the local level because of that misunderstanding of what that relationship is between the physicians and the PA's license and the, the certification, which from a legal perspective has the same standing as that uh, national certification does. 
Yeah, and, and so much of this comes down to training and the battalion doc and PA being directly involved in that training with their with their medics. Absolutely, and an undeniable emphasis of the of the system that at that local level is really where the most differences can be made. All right, well, thank you, Dr. Cunningham, for uh, for being with us today, and those are some really good comments, and uh, I think we'll have you back for another uh, another podcast to go over some of these issues again one day. Well, thank you, Monty, and absolutely my pleasure. All right, this concludes this edition of the TC3 Podcast. Please return next time by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on our website. Remember that you, remember that you can always find the latest TC3 information, knowledge tools, and current guidelines at www.cotcc.com or kotc.com. Feel free to provide feedback, ask questions, prompt discussions, or make a TC3 suggestion on the feedback form of the Katsi website. Keep in mind that changes to the TC3 guidelines are published in detail in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Our target is eliminating preventable combat death, which can be achieved with the right training and the right tools applied by the right people at the right time. As always, stay safe out there and continue saving lives on the battlefield, wherever that battlefield or deployed setting or street is in the world for you. Mm -hmm.